Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Wednesday Wake Up. I am your host, Gregory Malouf. Today, we have a very special session where I will be talking with Dr. Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is the founder of the Internal Family Systems Model. He's also the author of the best-selling book, No Bad Parts, Healing Trauma and Restoring Wholeness with the Internal Family Systems Model. And we'll be talking with Dr. Schwartz today about internal family systems, a little bit about the Dharma and psychotherapy. Welcome, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Gregory. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate you coming in today, Dr. Schwartz. As we get started here, I just wanted to give a little shout out to folks to let them know how I am familiar with your work and what it's meant to me. Very excited about uh, talking with you. As uh, my, my listeners know, I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm also a Buddhist Dharma teacher. And I remember going through grad school and studying therapy. I was already a Buddhist and a meditator at the time. And Grad school was great, got attached to some different modalities, you know, definitely explored the basics, but it was after grad school that I first took a training in IFS and I'll never forget the moment, like it was 10 minutes into the training where there was this kind of relaxation and ease that I felt where there was a sense of coming home finally to a psychotherapeutic modality that resonated with my meditative experience and my experience of how my mind actually works, you know, how it actually works because being in the, the Dharma and being a Buddhist, we come from this not self or parts model already. And I didn't find that as I was growing up as a therapist. And when I finally found um, internal family systems, there was this unification and correlation that just felt like a huge relief that finally I found someone that could relate to how my brain, I think my brain actually works. So um, I'm very excited to have you here to, to talk about the second edition, new release of your book, and the crossover between psychotherapy and the Dharma. I thought maybe we would start with just letting our listeners know a little bit about what does the term internal family systems actually mean? How did that, that come about? And how did you give birth to this, this idea of a multi-self or parts model of consciousness? Yeah, um, I didn't exactly give birth to it. I ran into it as more like it. I'm trained as a family therapist and uh, have a PhD in that. And as such, I was uh, I assiduously avoided learning about intrapsychic models because there was that was back in the day, 1980, mm -hmm. uh, where polarization between psychoanalysis and family therapy and so on. And so I was ardent as a family therapist that it's it could do it all. You didn't need to muck around in the inner world at all. Uh -huh. And I had to try and do an outcome study to prove that with a symptom of bulimia and found that wasn't true, that we couldn't heal the bulimics. And out of frustration, began asking them why they, they continue to do this, binging and purging, mm -hmm. started teaching this to me because they started talking about these different parts that would take over and make them do things they didn't want to do and had big fights with each other. And 
at first I was scared because it seemed like maybe they're sicker than I thought. Oh, right. And then I listened inside myself and oh my God, I've got them too. So then I just got curious. And I think in the Buddhist term, I was lucky because I came to the phenomena with beginner's mind because I didn't really have a, a way to, to frame or to pre, preconceive what they were telling right, me. Right, right. And forced to really listen and, and forced to, to kind of continue to get to know them and, and believe what they were saying about themselves. And uh, what I learned ultimately to keep it short is that even the parts that seem so destructive and these believings would have these nasty, nasty inner critics, for example, mm -hmm. and have this part that would make them binge and take them away. And then they would have these parts inside that both of those were reacting to, which felt really worthless and empty and alone and young that we call exiles. And so as I started as a family therapist to track these sequences and patterns in the same way we did with external families, found very, a lot of similarities and became intrigued with that and then learned that the parts weren't what they seemed, that the critic isn't just an internalized, you know, voice of your critical parent, but it actually is a, a part of you that's trying to help doesn't know what else to do but yell at you to get you to stop binging, for example. Right, right. It's doing it's doing what it knows best, you know, in order to protect. Yeah, and a lot of times it learned that strategy when you were quite young and it's still frozen in that time and doesn't know what else to do with you. <laughs> right. The binging part is desperate to try to get you away from the pain of these young ones who, who feel so empty and alone and so on. And... It's just trying to protect you too. And uh, the basic assumption is that we all have what I call parts. It's the nature of the mind to be multiple in that sense that people who have been diagnosed with multiple personality or DID aren't really different than any of us, except that their system got blown apart more. But what are called alters in, in that world are really the same as what I'm calling parts. They're Certainly. Full range interpersonalities that we're born with, either manifest or dormant. And uh, they're all valuable. And that only makes sense. We wouldn't have stuff we're born with that wasn't valuable. They have different talents and, and resources for us. But as we go through life, trauma and attachment injuries and you know bullying and all the slings and arrows we suffer force them out of their naturally valuable states into roles that can be damaging, but maybe were needed at some point in your life to keep you safe. Right. But they're frozen in time. They really believe you're still five years old sometimes. And mm -hmm. over some time, I came to figure that out and started to help clients try to get to know these parts and honor them rather than fight with them or try to get rid of them. And in the process of doing that, I, we learn more about how some protect others and some are polarized with others. And, and as I tried to bring some family therapy technique to this inner system, like I might have you, uh, Gregory, talk to this critic of yours and try to get to know it. Let's say we did that. 
and I would say, where do you find it in your body and how do you feel toward it? And tell me what it's doing right now. What's it saying to you right now? And I would try to get you rather than to argue with it, but just ask why it's doing that. And let's say I'm doing that to try and get a new relationship with that critic or, and suddenly you're furious with the critic. Mm -hmm. And when I would think back to family sessions where I might have two people talking to each other and it's going okay. And suddenly a third one interferes and starts to, to side with one against the other. And in family therapy, we learn to get that third party out and have the two of them continue to talk. And when I tried to apply that to inner systems, I might say, Gregory, I'd like you to get the part that's so angry at the critic to just relax in there and step back just till we're done. And most people can do that pretty readily. And then now how do you feel toward the critic? And seconds earlier, maybe you hated it. And now you suddenly out of the blue, you're saying, you know, I'm curious about it and you'd feel calm toward it and you'd, you'd have confidence and also even some, maybe some compassion for it. And as I did that process with other people of simply getting certain parts to open space inside, I would see the same person would pop out with those same, what we call C word qualities of calm, curiosity, confidence, compassion, also creativity, clarity, connectedness. And I always forget one, but there are these eight C words that, that classified this person who we are releasing by getting parts to open space that I came to call the self with a capital S. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because when I would ask people now, what part of you is that who, who has all these great qualities? They'd say, that's not a part like these others. That's me. That's myself. And uh, it turns out now, 40 years later and thousands of people doing this around the world, you can safely say that that self, is in everybody, can't be damaged, knows how to heal, and is just beneath the surface of these parts such that when they open space, comes out spontaneously. So that's the big discovery of IFS. And uh, I'm very interested in how that correlates with Buddhist teachings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love the way um, a couple things that come to mind when I hear you talk in those terms. So one, just coming back around and um, reflecting back what you just said about the fact that when you started looking inward, you were coming from an external to the internal. So you were doing family systems as physical beings in a room, which I'm familiar with as a family therapist. And then you moved inward. And what you discovered was a multiplicity of parts or voices or selves, however you want to use the framework in IFS, it's parts um, in Buddhism, it's selves. But and then you you could see clearly that these selves or parts interact just the way a family would each has its needs it's sometimes they're trying to do good for each other they interrupt they course correct they criticize they get ashamed and they're all interacting and it's really really interesting how in ifs we're going inward and we're looking at this multiplicity of selves that are engaging and interacting like a family system would externally and we're approaching it with curiosity openness, concern, self-love. And you also notice that when we approach those parts or those selves with that engagement, rather than trying to eradicate them or exile them, which we'll talk about in a little bit, or to be ashamed of them by opening up to them and bringing some equanimity, some acceptance to these parts, these voices, 
that this other thing emerges that's kind of there underneath, which are these qualities you talk about, calmness, clarity, curiosity, compassion. And coming from uh, a Dharma teacher, the, the correlation that I love in this model with, with traditional Buddhism is that in Buddhism, there's what we call the seven factors of awakening, which are heart-mind qualities that when we allow them to come into being, when we cultivate them and rest in them, there's this sense of liberation and fullness and connectivity and awakening. And they're very similar to this list of uh, eight C's that you talk about, which I find really remarkable. Um, we have joy, tranquility, compassion, wisdom, equanimity, these heart-mind qualities are very similar to what arises from folks who are doing this model, which I find just so, I, it, it's really exciting to see that, that correlation. The other part that I really like about what you're saying is that IFS postulates very strongly and explicitly this inherent goodness in us, that underneath it all, there's this goodness, this kindness, this compassion. And traditional Buddhism also approaches the psyche in that way. It, it approaches this not-self phenomenon as there, today there's an angry self that has arisen. Oh, look, a self that has anxiety or, oh, look, the depressed self has arisen. It's not who we are in totality, but moments of constructed consciousness that arise and pass away. And I see that connection deeply in, in IFS, which is why I'm so related to that model. Oh, thank you for that. And yeah, the, the qualities you just mentioned are just different words, um, but basically it sounds like you're accessing the same self that I, what I call self. Yeah, I, I don't know how much various forms of Buddhism would consider the parts little inner beings as much as I do. Mm -hmm. I think for when I've had these discussions with some Buddhists, they, they see them much more ephemerally, like they they kind of come and go and they dissolve and so on. So that might be a difference. Yes, definitely. I think depending on the, the tradition, the we do focus on an ephemerality and the the ephemeral perspective that we apply to it in part is you know, sort of a tool to encourage non non attachment and not an over identification with to really notice that they arise and they pass is, is very much a heavy focus on Buddhism, wherein, in IFS, there's this wonderful thing that re I think really enhances the Buddhist model, which is encouraging us to actually see them as sub identities or sub selves and seeing that they have, as you pointed out in your book, sort of this union autonomy, this they have their own will, they have their own desire, their own function and roles, and they very much have an energized aliveness that you can have them talk to each other, engage with each other. And we don't do a lot of that in the Dharma, which is actually what I like about IFS is that it gives meditators an opportunity to look at the not self model and consider what happens if we start engaging with the selves? Like what happens if that critic self starts to talk to the others? Like, we don't do a lot of that in, in Buddhism. And I find it so interesting that you can sort of add that to, to Dharma practice and get incredible results. Can you, before we go on to the types of selves that you've distinguished in IFS, which is, I just love that, that model. Can you just speak a little bit to the inheritance of a self model, a singular self model? What, how is it that we culturally or psychologically have sort of inherited an idea to not look for multiplicity, that we tend to look for solidity and uh, essentialism, right? An essential self. 
is that just kind of accidental? Is it biological? Like, why do we tend to go with an inheritance of I am this versus, oh, look at all these, you know, voices that I've got. Look at these subparts. What, what is your take on that? Yeah, I don't have a real good answer for that. I, I know that multiplicity has been pathologized as we were talking about multiple personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Back when that was very, was first discovered as a syndrome, I think the culture really took a, a very negative view of multiplicity as a result. And if you had, if you talked to yourself, if you heard voices, if you did any of that, then you were crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, anything multiple is, is uh, regarded as, as pathological. So that was, uh, particularly when I started out, that was a big obstacle to my acceptance. I, everywhere I would present, I would get comments like you're fragmenting people and you're creating multiple personality disorder. Mm. And, and oddly enough, I think, I don't know why exactly, I almost never get that anymore. It feels like the culture has really shifted in that direction. Right, right. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I did not know that about the early history of your teachings and coming out with the view. And it, it makes sense that people might say, oh, aren't you making people disassociative, <laughs> you know, or would now we call it yeah. DID, of course, but back then, yeah, like multiple personality disorder, I can see how there'd be that fear. Well, when clients come in, uh, in your in your experience, now you've been doing this a really long time, um, and culture has shifted. Is there a natural aversion at all that comes up for folks when we start to, to ask, like, hey, can you kind of get in touch with the these different parts, these different selves? What do you find with clients these days kind of across the board? Yeah, again, not nearly like it used to be. I, I used to always get some, some version of, what do you think, I'm civil? <laughs> right. Probably your audience is too young to know that reference. But yeah, there would always be, I'm not crazy. I don't, I don't have, I don't hear voices. So we found ways to language it so that, that we didn't elicit that reaction nearly as much. Mm -hmm. And, and these days, you know, mainly I'm working with people that want to come do this work. So I don't run into that almost ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good to see the cultural shift, definitely, with that. Um, in Buddhism, sometimes we get, when meditators first start meditating, of course, they start going inward, and maybe they haven't done that before. And the noise of the choir of voices can be really intimidating. It can be a little like, am I, what's going on in there? Like, they haven't looked inside before, so that... That first mindfulness experience, which they think is going to create calm and ease, puts them face to face with a choir of voices that are arguing, bickering, shaming, and that become, you know, we get past that in, in meditation treat teaching, but I'm familiar with that part of it, that kind of like, oh, wow, is this normal mm -hmm. to have one part of me arguing with this other part of me? And is that all a part of me, you know, capital M-E? And uh, so I appreciate that, that you've done this work and, and paved the way for us to be able to have this, this kind of discussion. You mentioned mindfulness and I'm a fan of mindfulness meditation. I, I feel like in, in seeing these thoughts and what people call thoughts and emotions, but they're really the mind, they're coming out of these parts is what we're talking about. In just doing that, you're separating from them. And when you separate from them, you access a lot more self. And so that's a good first step in my mind, but not interacting them like you were saying earlier just watching them or being very accepting of them isn't enough for them they really want 
more of a leader to come in and reassure them and hold them and comfort them. So for me, mindfulness meditation is a great first step. But like you were saying, to add some IFS, not every time necessarily, but uh, to follow up with some of these parts that are, you know, the metaphor I like is it's not compassion to watch suffering beings parade by passively. Right. You're going to want to try to help them. Exactly. And then you're looking at those selves as parts that need compassion, uh, I think is really important. And, and that is really what I appreciate about your model and what I've experienced, you know, in meditation over the years. I had been a really significant, had a significant meditation practice for quite a bit of years. I am a child of trauma, diagnosed with GAD early on, generalized anxiety disorder for those who are listening. And you know, I got so much work done on meditation retreats and, you know, certainly could manage, I could kind of depersonalize the anxiety, I could watch it and not react. And that saved my life, certainly. But there was a point in my meditation practice, where I was asking myself and teachers, you know, I can watch the anxiety arise, but some that's not enough, like something for those of us who had, at least from my experience, for those of us who had trauma and some really heavy experiences, I did find at a certain point that equanimity as a heart-mind response to that part of myself sort of plateaued, that I had to that's engage right. it. And that's when I went back to therapy. <laughs> that's when I went back to therapy and started doing some of this work and EMDR and those kind of things where, where I was starting to engage that part of myself. So I really do appreciate that difference that you're really encouraging, yes, mindfulness to be able to look at the multiplicity of cells. But then engaging them really is the heart of the IFS model to get in there and to start working and engaging, not just watching. The goal is not passivity of awareness and just allowing them to kind of, like you said, parade by. Yeah, I have a very similar story. When I graduated college, because I, I wasn't a good student, I had kind of ADD and undiagnosed and was very anxious about how am I ever going to support myself? And I I got into TM Oh yes, and had a mantra and I, I could use the mantra to get very high. And, and when you get up there, you're, it really helps with your anxiety. And I, it really did help me. And I wasn't doing anything for what I call my exile parts. I just, I was kind of leaving them in, in exile. And so it was both very helpful, but I can also see why many people get caught up in the spiritual bypass aspect of it because you got to, then you got to meditate all the time to stay above the pain or the, the anxiety. Yes. And, and then ultimately when I started learning from clients about IFS, I started going to my own anxiety, my own pain and helping it all transform. And then I didn't need to meditate nearly as much because I wasn't so afraid of the non-meditative state. Gotcha. Yes. And I, uh, I started off with transcendental meditation too, by the way, just to throw that in there. Yes. I'm very familiar with that blissful state. You, you've mentioned a couple of times and I'd like to definitely dive into this. Can you talk a little bit about exiles? This, this, the, what you, what we call in IFS exiles, because this is just such a important part of this. Uh, and it's helped me tremendously. Can you just talk about what is an exiled part and how does it function in the mind? And what have you discovered about it? Yeah. So we have all these parts. Some of them are what other systems would call inner children that are young and uh, when they're not hurt, when they're, when they're in their naturally valuable state, they, they lend us a lot of creativity and awe at the world and 
and ability to connect with people and desire to connect and all these wonderful qualities. But because they're so sensitive, they're also the parts that can be hurt the most or mm. terrified the most. They're young and they're like young kids. They get scared and they also take on the burden of worthlessness the most. And when they carry, you know, if we have a big trauma or a betrayal or some rejection or something like that, um, and they, the, they're the ones that feel the effects of that the most, they have the power now to overwhelm us and to pull us back into that time and make us feel everything we felt back then. Because now they carry the burdens of worthlessness, terror, or emotional pain. And we don't like that because it, make it makes it hard to function. Mm -hmm. We have almost a natural impulse to try and push all that away and lock it in some kind of inner basement or abyss or something and kind of throw away the key. And our culture supports that because this is a rugged individualist, just move on culture. Yes, definitely. Just let it go. Don't, don't even think about it. So as you go through life, especially if you don't even know these are, are parts or per, subpersonalities, you wind up more and more exiling your juice, your essence, what the parts of you that give you all these wonderful qualities simply because they got hurt or terrified or shamed. And when you have a lot of exiles, you feel much more delicate because so many things could trigger them. And the world seems a lot more dangerous because so many things could trigger them. Oh, right. Yes, I see. And so then a bunch of other parts have to become, they have to leave their naturally valuable states and become protectors. And, and their protectors' goals are both to contain the exiles and also control the outside world so they don't get triggered so much or if they do get triggered to take you away from the feelings so to dissociate you or get you into an addiction or get you enraged or something like that in a very impulsive way so and as i you know used my family therapy mapping onto that territory i could identify two different kinds of protectors one are the the managers who are trying to manage everything so preempt anything that would trigger you and manage your body so you didn't feel very much and all that. And then these, these very impulsive, reactive, what we call firefighter protectors who go into action after an exile has been triggered and these flames of emotion are threatening to consume you. So they have to do something extreme often to put out that fire or to get you higher than the flames or to dis distract you until it burns itself out. So that's the very simple map. Uh, and again, just to reiterate, these are not the essence of these parts. These are the roles they're forced into because of traumas. But once they're released from these roles, they immediately transform into their naturally valuable states, which is what uh, we try to bring to, to people. Right, that was that self capital S, but self-leadership or self-state or self-led, which you were talking about, is that when when these parts that are serving particular functions that we, before we look at them, we might just experience it as discomfort, depression, anxiety. It, we, it's all conflated, of course, in the, in the human experience. So before we start looking at what's going on, we might know, oh, I'm depressed and I'm distracting myself with Netflix or with alcohol or drugs or 
bad relationship or repeating habits like that we just experience that kind of enmesh into the the physicality and emotional state of that and then as we look at it through an ifs model what you're saying is this pain is this exiled part because we tend to push that away then other parts of ourselves then have to play these roles to like you said protect or the firefighter and so it's it's not like the part of ourself that has the addiction is a bad part. It's just, as you say, it's, is it, do you call it a bad role or a, an unskillful role? How do you describe that distinction? Yeah, you could say an unskillful role. It's, it was needed back when you got hurt and it's still living back there. It still thinks you're five years old and you need that kind of pain, pain control. And uh, yeah, if you sent, cause you know, so many systems try to go to war against that addict part or, you know, at least get you to ignore it or, you know, do something. If instead you go to it and ask why, what are you afraid would happen if you didn't get me high? You'll learn about what it protects. Mm. And then once you get that, you can extend appreciation to it. And they love that because everybody's been demonizing them and trying to get rid of them. And then they soften and they're not going to change. This is another aspect of the systems, another uh, part of the systems aspect of IFS. Most of these firefighters, like addict parts, can't really stop doing what they're doing as long as the pain is there that they're trying to get you away from. So we go to them not expecting them to change, which is very different from most other models. We go to them simply to honor them for their service, like you might the military, mm. and learn about what they protect. And they get permission from them to go to that pain or that terror or that shame and find the part that carries all that. And then there's a process by which we can actually heal that. We can help these parts unburden the pain or terror or shame. Uh, and that involves witnessing where you got it in the past Mm -hmm. So you become a witness to your own personal history. And then once the part feels finally witnessed, like now you finally get what happened and how bad it was, I would say to you, Gregory, I want you to go to that little boy and be with him in that time period and the way he needed somebody. And you would say, okay, I'm there. I would say, how are you being with him? Well, I'm just standing next to him as he endures this. Okay. And see if he needs anything back there from you, or if he'd just like to leave that time and place and come to a safe present or fantasy place. So we do what we call a retrieval of these exiles, after which they're, they feel safe, they feel uh, out of that time, they can be with you in a safe present, and then they're willing usually to unload all the feelings and beliefs they got back in that time. And once we do that, once we unburden them that way, they immediately transform like a curse has been lifted into their naturally joyful, playful, lighter say, uh, state. Right, right. And then we can bring in the firefighter, the addiction part to see it doesn't have to do this anymore. And now it's wanting to do something entirely different. So I love the thing. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. I, I love the way that the approach again has this inner goodness, but, but uh, one of the things we say often as meditation teachers in the beginning for meditation students is, you know, what we're trying to do is to let go of the war with the mind. Like we don't want to go to war with the mind. When we go to war with the mind, it creates more friction, right? We, we want to learn to let go and bring some equanimity and some self-compassion and self-care. And 
little bit more non-judgmental awareness to to the experience of what what's happening in consciousness. And what I what I love about the IFS mo model that you just described is that we're going to the part of ourself that's been exiled and we're caring for it, loving. I mean, it's a direct act of inner self-compassion at like the deepest level. And we're also not shaming or yelling at or demanding our protector to just stop, which is, you know, when we're overeating, we sort of like, oh, I can't do this. Can I? And you sort of try to yell at yourself. Like, why can't you just stop eating the thing? Or why can't you just stop the drinking? Or why did you binge watch another episode? And, and there's this and maybe this is a cultural experience, but I know internally we have this kind of war. And here, what you're asking us to do is to take these protectors and acknowledge that they're probably exhausted and tired and feeling embarrassed for having to do what they do anyway. And so we're not only loving the parts of ourselves that have been wounded, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're also kind of loving the parts that have been protecting us from experiencing the wound, correct? There's that, it's on both sides. You're not wrong at all. Uh, as we learn how valiantly they've been trying to protect, even though it causes more trouble, um, then then we give them lots of love and appreciation. And and to do that, like you said, there's usually this critic, which is usually a manager, who is attacking you for not being able to control whatever the addiction is. And that just adds to the whole sequence because the more shaming that does that part does, the more that goes to the heart of the exile, who now carries a lot more shame. Mm -hmm. And that just makes the job of the, of the firefighter that much harder. So it becomes that kind of vicious cycle uh, that we interrupt, usually first by getting the critic to back off and help it see that its actions are backfiring, and then go to the, the firefighter and then go to the exile. I see. And, and that's, is that a little bit different, that order you're describing? Is that order of engagement similar or different to traditional psychotherapy models as far as the way you've gone down into that, the way you just described it? Is that is that how we would do it, say, in cognitive behavioral therapy or attachment therapy? Or is IFS doing it slightly differently? I, I just, I can't remember if, if, that's a, if that's unique to IFS, that way that you go in there into the psyche. I don't really know. I mean, I think the big difference is we go to each of these parts, including the critic, to honor it for its intentions mm. and to uh, form a, a new relationship with it rather than to correct its irrational thinking or rather than try to get them to change, actually. I see. A big dif difference with most other systems that we're... Uh, we know these parts are really not going to be able to change until what they protect has been healed. So we're not going to even try most of the time. We're simply going to get permission to go to the exiles and heal all that, come back and lo and behold, they know they don't want to do these jobs anymore. They want something else. Right. They're tired of the, they're tired of the role that they've been put in from the trauma or the, whatever the, the initial impact was. I can see what you're saying. Instead of, and again, I just, it reminds me of the sense of the, in the Dharma, this not going to war with the mind. Instead of trying to force a behavior to change, we go underneath and look at the pain and love the pain and honor. We, we look at the, what would normally be called we, the maladaptive behavior, for lack of a better word. We look at that part and we don't look at it as maladaptive as much as we look at it as like, wow, you've been really trying to protect me by overeating, or you've been trying to protect me by 
working long hours, you know, or, or, or whatever the workaholism or whatever the maladaptive. And we're honoring that self for what it's done, for its nobility, for its efforts. And also looking at it, it has, it has its own wound, right? The protectors also feel is they carry their own burden, right? A burden. Yes. I like the way you said that. Yeah. Most of them won't unburden though, until what they've, what they protect has been healed first. So that's why we go to the protectors first, not expecting them to unburden or change at all, but simply to honor them and then get permission to go to the exiles. Mm -hmm. We go to the exiles, we heal them, we come back to the protectors and now they're interested in unburdening too. Gotcha. Well, you said something just there that I thought was really powerful, which was we go to the protectors first, honor them, respect them, and get permission or ask them if they're willing to step back slightly and allow us to then access our exiled parts, the more traumatized parts. What popped in my head when you said that is like self-trust or you're, you're establishing like a kind of a rapport with the protector. Can you trust me enough to give me access to that which you're protecting? Is that something that's happening there? This trust, is, is there trust building going on there? Yeah. Um, you know, I learned the hard way early on, the big mistake it is to try to go to exiles without getting permission from protectors because they'll make you pay. They'll make the client pay mm. if you bypass them. So, so we almost always go first to the protectors and that is some of the harder aspects of IFS because especially in trauma survivors like yourself, there's you, they usually have a lot of fear about letting you go, about opening that door to the exiles. At one point, I listed about nine common fears. And over the years, we've been able to find ways to address each of the fears. So we don't go without permission, but we've gotten really good at being what I call a hope merchant and letting these hopeless protectors know, no, we're not going in there to grovel in it. We're going in there to actually unload all this stuff that you that you have to work so hard to keep Gregory away from. Or if we do open that door, I'm not going to be judging you. I know you assume that I will be, but I just have admiration for people that are willing to go there. And so on and on, the common fears we try to address and say, okay, you're still the boss. We're not going to do it without your permission, but what do you think? And, you know, if I can come in self with all these C word qualities, uh, these Protectors are really desperate for getting out of their jobs. So they, they really want it to happen. And if they ever believe that what I'm, what I, that I can pull off what I'm saying, they usually give me permission. Wow. It's phenomenal that the mind works in that way. I, that's just fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to bring this back together to what we talked about sort of early on was part of the goal, if you could call it that the goal of IFS is to work with these particular parts, the exile, the firefighter, the manager, and the critic to, to get in here and do this interconnected trust building, the self-compassion, the self-love, the re-experiencing to the degree um, to give our inner child, so to speak, that which it needed at the time, but was not able to be able to have and be able to, to bring that kind of work in. And, and what you're saying is that when when those parts of ourselves become unburdened through this process, a natural response is this capital self arises that maybe has been submerged underneath or just been clouded over that is naturally creative, compassionate, 
like you said, connective, calm, confident. Do you find in the process of IFS that that, but are you saying that that bubbles up naturally as those other parts unburden themselves, that sort of rises to the surface? Can you, can you explain that teeter totter moment where one starts to unburden and the other starts to emerge? I'm just curious what that, that experience is like. Yeah, it's a little different from that in the sense that we generally don't start going to parts. Like if I was working with you, Gregory, I would say, how do you feel toward the critic? And you might say, either I, I hate it or I'm afraid of it. Mm -hmm. And I would say, okay, in my head, I'm saying, we're not going to go when you're in that state. We're not going to start talking to it. So I would say, could you ask the one who hates it or the one who's terrified of it, could you ask them just for a few minutes to just relax so we could just get to know this critic and maybe help it change? And you would see, and if they did, and a lot of times they will, then I would say, now how do you feel toward the critic? And you would it would be an entirely different answer. And you would say oh, some version of, I just want to get to know why it's calling me names all day, but from a place of calm and confidence and even compassion. So then I know you've got access to self to some degree. And then I would have you start to interact with it. And you would kind of know the questions to ask. I could almost get out of the way. And you would start to form a new relationship with it that was compassion-based. And then when it sensed you as a leader that there was somebody else in there, that it doesn't have to run things. It doesn't, a lot of these, especially the critics or the, the managers are parentified inner children. If you know that term from family therapy, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. they, they have huge amounts of responsibility and they're in over their heads, but they don't know how to do it. And they, they don't know there's a self in there. So as they get to know this other person that for the first time, a lot of the time, they relax a lot and then they become far more cooperative. So I'm helping you access your part right away. Gotcha. And then interact from that place. And then you're right. As we heal these parts and they unburden, then you access more and more self and the parts come to trust you more and more as a leader. And then you start leading your life from this, eight C word place rather than from these, these managers. And earlier we were talking about social activists and how often they're leading their activism from these very righteous or sort of condemning places that just backfire. Mm -hmm. And I've been working with a lot of them to, to do their social activism from self and they're finding they have much better results because they're not shaming any enemies. Right, right. And putting that together, thanks for clarifying the that distinction between this self, capital self that has calmness, clarity, curiosity, compassion, all of those positive traits. I see now that you're saying that you're accessing that throughout the relationship with the other parts, the exile. The, I see what you're saying now. You're not, you're doing the work simultaneously. And as the unburdening happens, that inherent calmness and courage and connectedness begins to be more where you act from a daily light. It's more where you're centered in. And so you're bringing the person or inviting them to get into this more centered self place to then look at the parts and engage those parts with those positive attributes. And then the work is done. And as the work gets done, these are more easily accessible. And you call that, uh, I think you said self-leadership or self-state where people are grounded and, and confident and caring in, in that place. 
so thank you for uh, clarifying that. that. That makes a whole lot of sense, having just uh, read the book. You had just mentioned activism, so I'd, I'd like to just jump into there for a few minutes, because um, as you, I think, and I were talking before we started recording, you know, I've been in social work for decades now, and it's been uh, a big a big thing of mine as a mental health therapist. I have worked with addictions and people who are homeless and just all kinds of different folks who've been different, different disenfranchised in a variety of ways over time. And one thing I mentioned to you early on is that over the course of my couple decades in social work, there has been this growing evidence of, for lack of a better word, this kind of shame-based psychology, this punitive righteous, almost an effort to eradicate the bad in people if we can, or somehow legalize it away. Uh, and, and when I was reading your book, I was so, there was this kind of relief I experienced in reading it. And I, I'd like to just quote a couple things you say in your book, if I may, sure. that kind of sparked this, this question. Let's see here. There was this one beautiful quote that you had, the view of ourselves as fundamentally selfish or sinful leads to harsh, punitive methods for controlling our parts and other people. That was the first quote. I found that really powerful. And then the second one that you say here, when a person is self-led, they don't need to be forced by moral or legal rules to do the right thing. And what I saw there was this not going to war with ourselves means we can then abandon going to war with others. If I'm if I'm understanding the mirror effect here, is what I really liked about what you were saying is maybe when I'm going out into the world and and trying to take a stand for social justice and climate change and and we'll, all of these isms that many of us as social workers are trying to to work with, maybe if I look at the way I'm interacting with my parts and and let go of some of that self hate and punitive energy that's going inward. Then when I go outward to see harm that I'm seeing in the environment, I might be able to then interact with people from that self state as well. And is that true? Am I, am I seeing that connection there between how I work on myself and others? Very well said. The axiom, axiom is you will relate to people in the outside world in the same way you relate to your parts that resemble those people. So if you are afraid of your own anger or you're judging yourself for having anger, you're going to be very, you're going to relate to the people that are angry that way and so on. If, if you have a lot of disdain for your weakness, then when people act in a weak way, you're going to judge them for that and so on. And, and so therein is, is really the key to effective social activism is to come with that kind of love and clarity. And, you know, the other thing is a couple of those C words, are very useful in the sense that if you have clarity, you see injustice. And then you have the courage, is a C word, to act to change the injustice and the confidence. So if I can help you as a social activist lead from those places, then with also that C word compassion, then people are not going to react negatively in the same way they would if you came with that that righteous part and 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 also if if we can help your scared parts such that when the police come you can stay calm and this is happening too people are describing how they stay calm when the police come and and it has a hugely different uh element to it in these protests and 
so on. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's great. And is this um, uh, just coming this coming back to psychology? Is is what we're talking about kind of reminiscent of the repress project kind of mechanism that what we're not comfortable inside that leaks out in other ways uh, towards others? But I've never seen it so clearly and beautifully described than I saw in your book. I mean, it was. Just, but that is what we're talking about: is that when we start to let go of the parts that we have ex not let go, but re- differently relate to the parts that we've exiled and that we're protecting then when we see others in that state, we're more likely to meet them with compassion rather than disdain and connect with them heart to heart rather than try to punish them in some in some way. Exactly. If you can love all of your parts, then you can love all people. And if you can't, then you can't. So. Mm-hmm. Now, thank you for that clarification. Uh, I definitely, when I recommend this book to folks, I, I want to point out that there is a absolutely beautiful section in this book as a Buddhist teacher that I I'm going to be referring back to forever because it's you give this incredible description of compassion and empathy and sympathy and pity this this description of the differences and how working with our parts with compassion and confidence and courage puts us in a place where we're naturally more empathetic or the empathetic part is allowed to come out. Now we don't, we're not afraid to be vulnerable and then we can really be empathetic towards ourselves and others. And man, if that's not needed in the world, like, I don't know, I don't know what it is. And you, you gave a beautiful description in the book for that. So for those who are going to be buying this, I, I, it's worth it just for that two pages of your description about <laughs> compassion. Thank you. Yeah. And it was all new to me. I mean, I didn't know any of this until I, started seeing it in clients and seeing all those differences between pity and compassion and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is is the beauty of what um, the IFS model offers is like I said, the inherent goodness, this commitment to compassion, this understanding that we're not necessarily socialized, particularly in the West to interconnected systems. But as we start to go in, I remember when I first uh, came to Buddhism because of trauma and whatever else in my life, but I was really angry, very judgmental, very afraid. So I was judging others in my head. There was this constant stream of judging others and yelling at them and this angriness, this loud anger before I really got in touch with my own trauma and even understood that that was what was going on. Um, Then when I met the Dharma, when I met Buddhism and started exploring self-compassion and compassion to others, I noticed that as I became more compassionate with myself, I could see that there was self-harm being done to me and to others, other harm. That was just a part of me that I was completely disenfranchised with. Out of, I didn't even realize that in trying to protect myself from the trauma, I was hurting myself and hurting others. And I, I just couldn't see that I just wasn't very, a very nice person. I was judgmental and irritable and needed to be right all the time. And what I what I loved about the the Dharma was that it, it taught me that once I could see how my mind was working and how my heart was working, when I began to see other people in those states, I could see that they were suffering and I wouldn't judge them in the same way. I would say, oh, that person has an angry part that's come up or that person is yelling. You can see that they're scared, that they're fearful because I know I'm that inside. And I really, that to me has transformed my life so significantly to be able to see um, once I know how my parts work, when other people's parts are lit up or when their protector or manager is up and out, I can have empathy because I see, I see this is just a part of you. This is not who you are in a, in a totalitarian or essence sense. 
Yeah, that's very similar to, it's a big part of IFS that when you can access self, and as I said, and you can relate with empathy to the parts of you that resemble these people when they're in their parts, uh, it's almost like you have x-ray vision, that C word clarity. You see past their protector to the pain that drives it. And that opens your heart so you can you can have compassion while at the same time from a place of courage maybe stop the person from hurting you but you're going to do it from a very different place exactly yeah yeah thanks for clarifying that dr schwartz i uh, appreciate it this has been wonderful talking to you i i'm just uh it's i'm just excited to be here this has been really fun i've really enjoyed listening to this from you uh like i said the this model has really helped me both as a meditator and a Buddhist, but also as a, a client of the, you know, for my own anxiety. And it, it's one of the things that's helped me most with my anxiety has been IFS more than anything I've ever uh, done. And I'm always recommending it to folks. So, so yeah, it's been a real privilege to be able to, to talk with you and hear it directly from you. I, I read the book. The book is amazing. I'm, I definitely highly recommend it. Um, as we come to close here, let me just reiterate that this book, uh, Introduction to internal family systems model is coming out on March 7th. And so you can get that on Amazon. I saw it there today when I was looking. It's definitely well worth reading. It's an amazing read. But then also in May, you're having another book come out, which is more about families or community, right? It, and couples. Yeah, couples. Okay, there yeah. we go. Sorry. Yeah. You're the one you've been waiting for. Applying internal family systems to intimate relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you just say a little bit about uh, that book, how the model it works with couples and families a little bit? Like, what is that book about and what, what, what goes on there? Yeah. So when most of us hook up uh, intimately, we have these exiles I've been talking about that are really looking for someone to take care of them. And we make our choices based on that. And often it's related to qualities that, that our parents have, the parents that didn't give us what we wanted. We're looking for similar people to, to sort of redeem yeah. us, to say we are valuable because our parents said we weren't. And so we, we pick certain kinds of people to be the, our, our intimate partners. And it turns out they can't take care of our exiles for us. They'll always fail in some way and hurt us or something like that. And so this book is about how to become the primary caretaker of your own parts so that your partner's freed up to be the secondary caretaker of those parts. Oh, wow. Because most of us have that reverse. Most of us want our partner to be the primary because we don't think, we don't know what to do with them ourselves. We've been searching for somebody who can take care of them. That's why the title, you're the one you've been waiting for, not not this partner. Oh, oh I love it. That's great. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I definitely could use that. <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, all right, great. So that's coming out in May as, uh, as well. So uh, congratulations on that. I'm looking forward to the, reading that one as well. Uh, before we close, can you tell me, if folks want to learn more about this, uh, you have founder or co-founder of Center for Self-Leadership, am I right? Well, we changed the name a few years ago, but it's called the IFS Institute. Okay. And uh, the website is ifs-institute.com. Wonderful. And um, just to just uh, uh, get some clarification, I've been hearing a lot about IFS, like IFS and different 
places, obviously in the therapeutic community, but I was at a Buddhist teachers conference recently and it came out in several breakout groups that we found ourselves talking about IFS. IFS trainings through the Institute, can anyone sign up for those? Do you have to be a medical professional or can someone who's just really wanting to get the healing and they've read the book, can they take part in those kind of trainings? What is it set up for? Yeah, um, anybody can sign up. We used to have more people that weren't therapists. We're trying to shift that okay. and have a separate kind of training for non-therapists. So, and, and we're in the process of doing that, but in the moment, anybody can sign up. Any last uh, words, Dick, that you'd like to share about yourself or the book or anything else that we you'd want to get in on the podcast? No, I really enjoyed talking to you, Gregory. It's, uh, it's rare for me to talk to somebody who's so appreciates the model and also is so steeped in Buddhism. And uh, I, I have a big interest in the combination. So it's really fun. Yes, definitely. I had a great time. So fun talking to you. Very much a highlight of my podcasting <laughs> moment. So thank you so much. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.